Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Now, I feel like I've been kind of just spinning my wheels trying to get through this section of Scripture. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Romans 12 through 8, I have been kind of dragging my feet through it for a few reasons. One is it's about, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts. And my own understanding of the spiritual gifts is, is uh, not too good, right? People ask me a lot of times, people have asked me, Terry, what is your spiritual gift? And, I would, and I'd say, I don't know. I don't know what my spiritual gift is. And they'd say, well, you know, my friend, in, uh, friend of mine in Louisiana, Pastor Howard Hall at Shreveport Baptist Temple, he said, the key to keeping people in your church is identifying their spiritual gift and then getting them, in, getting them involved in a service or a place in the church that lets them use their spiritual gift. And then you'll keep people longer than normal. And he said, you'll keep people. He said, he, he kind of down to a science. There's a cycle of people. And I don't want to tell you guys the cycle of church membership, because you, might, you guys might say, my time's up, I'm leaving. <laughs> but there is kind of a, of a cycle to these things, and, uh, and Howard's made, us, made a study of it. And so he sent me a bunch of material about it, and this is, this is this when I was pastor in Arkansas, so it's at least over 10 years ago. And I really couldn't get my brain around it, and I've read some other things about it. And then uh, last winter, I think I was going to Ron Roush's small group, and Ron, he went through the spiritual gifts, and uh, it, was very, it was very helpful, but still I thought, I don't really know about these spiritual gifts. And then you have, there's two kinds of spiritual gifts. There are sign gifts, and then you have the serving gifts. And then uh, the, the sign gifts are, the, are what we call the, the charismatic gifts, the charismata. And um, that's the Pentecostals, usually that's, they, that's usually their territory, and I have, I have some significant disagreements with them. And so when you're preaching through the Bible, you're forced to deal with things you don't want to deal with, right? Now, I tried skipping it. I thought if I just preached about other stuff, you guys would forget about it. And, and nobody's really brought it up to me, but I feel like it's disingenuous for me to dodge it. And so the next three weeks, I told you, I was gonna, I'm going to talk about this for the next three weeks, I think, today and two more, and then um, hopefully we'll be done with it. So you can, you can expect to be in this section of Scripture a little bit longer. But here at the front, I want to say to you, I'm going to be talking to Christians mostly this morning. Talking to Christians mostly. But before I do that, I want to say a word to those of you who may be here and who are not Christians. Because we don't want to let, we don't want to let a Lord's Day go by where we're, we're, not, we're not pointing out to people that there is only hope and salvation through Jesus Christ. And that this hope and salvation that Christ gives to us is only attained. Listen to that word. Only attained through faith in Jesus Christ. Personal, sincere, intentional faith in Jesus Christ. If you do not put your faith in Jesus Christ, personally and intentionally, if you do not call upon the name of the Lord, you are not going to be saved. And that's the only way you can appropriate salvation. If the Bible said that you appropriate salvation or justification or forgiveness of sins by rubbing peanut butter and jelly sandwiches on your arm... That's what I would be saying to you. But the Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, whoever believeth in him shall be saved. Believing in Christ, entrusting yourself to Christ. So I want you to know the, the following things, all right? Being a Christian 
is not gained through church attendance. If you go to church a lot, that's not going to get you into heaven. Having Christian parents or grandparents does not make you a Christian. You can only become a Christian when you come to know something about yourself. And that's that you are unrighteous. And I think if I asked you guys, how many of you, how many of you would say you're a sinner? Probably everybody would say, hey, I'm a, I'm a sinner. I know I sin. But it's not just that you're a sinner. It's that you lack righteousness. You are unrighteous. The worst dude in town, when he looks in the mirror, he'll see, he'll, he'll, he'll see himself as better than he really is. Better than he really is. You have no righteousness of your own. You do not have inherent righteousness. You need alien righteousness. You need a righteousness that's not yours. You need a righteousness from another world. You need the righteousness of God. And the only way you, and the only way you can receive that righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ. So that's counterintuitive to all of us because we all know we're Americans... Anything worth having is worth what? Working for. You want a nicer house? Get out there and work hard. Buy more lottery tickets. <laughs> Get a better system at the casino. I mean, if you want, if you want to have better anything, you've got to really get after it. And that makes sense to us in so many ways, except salvation. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of works, lest any man should boast. If you could work your way into heaven, and Jesus wouldn't have to come and down the cross for your sins. And you may say, well, I, I'm working my way to heaven, but I would never brag about it. That's because you don't understand yourself. I go out in the garage, and I straighten up the garage. This is how it works. Some people are very organized, and some people are very disorganized, and the latter is me. And so when I go out in the garage, and I straighten up the garage, and I get all my junk rearranged... I go in the house, and I say to Valerie, you want to come see the garage? <laughs> Look what I've done. <laughs> I want you to see it. And all I've done is just rearrange the junk. And she comes out there, and she oohs and ahs, you know, oh, so nice, good idea. You now I've put 4,700 nails in the wall, and she's like, oh, <laughs> good thinking. <laughs> <laughs> we, but we need a righteousness that's not our own. We need something from God. And when you come to know, when you come to really become a Christian, you'll cease. You'll cease to be boastful about your righteousness because you'll come to know that it all came from Jesus and not anything from you. Now let's read our text here, Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 8. For by, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, one who contributes in generosity, one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of God's holy word. 
Now, in this text of the scripture, Paul uses this metaphor of a body, and this metaphor is genius. And we should expect Paul's writings to be very intelligent and very well put together because Paul's words are actually the words of the Holy Spirit. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Now, a body has many parts, but each individual part of the body is dependent on the other parts of the body. And each body part plays a role in the health and welfare of the whole body. And when part of the body becomes sick, injured, or something happens to disrupt the harmony of the body, the body suffers and can become disabled. So we need to take care of the body. Now, we all know this in a, in a personal sense. We all have bodies. We need to take care of our bodies the best we can. A healthy body, anybody really, needs two things. It needs good food and it needs some exercise. And the church itself also needs, a, needs to have good food. That's why the Apostle Paul told Timothy to preach the word. Preach the word. And then a church needs exercise. The church needs things to do. A local church needs to be a living, growing organism, a body that's making a difference in the world, reaching out and performing the will of God. Now, here in Romans chapter 12, we encounter a few words about the different assignments that we have in the body. Now, this is redundant. I've already, gave, I've already mentioned this twice in two sermons. I know this is the third time, but you know what they say the third time is what? Third time's a charm. So here we go. Verse 3. The attitude we need. Humility. Within the body, we need to maintain an attitude of humility. This is very difficult for some of us. Now, for some people, they're naturally humble. Other people are naturally not humble and brag about everything they accomplish. And, you know, that's who's talking to you right now is Mr. Me. I, I, I have such a big head about so many things. Now, some of you say, well, you seem to be humble to me. Tricked you. <laughs> now, there are five things that can make us arrogant. Five things. Here they are. You ready? 1 Corinthians 8.1 says that knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. Have you ever seen somebody go away to college and they get one semester under their belt? And they come back and, and they know everything? Maybe they, maybe they complete undergraduate school, they go to grad school, and they realize that now they really have a big, giant, juicy brain. Knowledge puffs up. And I've, I've lived with this my whole life, knowledge puffing up. Because I always find myself reading more and more things, reading more and more obscure things, reading, reading, reading more and more things so I can impress somebody with my knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. Number two, skills and ability puff up. People who are highly skilled and have great abilities puff up. Now, there, I, like, I like basketball, and I really don't follow basketball too much. But there, there's one basketball player that I really just do not, I cannot, I don't like him at all, and that's LeBron James. I cannot abide LeBron James. I don't like anything about him. I don't like the Lakers either. <laughs> I, just can't, I just can't take it because he's so good. <laughs> <laughs> and so you, you, skills and ability can puff people up. You may be highly skilled at something, and it's easy to get a big head about it. I was listening to this uh, podcast. It's called The Demise of Mars Hill. The Demise of Mars Hill. 
It's a kind of a kind of a doc, documentary uh, about a church in Seattle called Mars Hill. Past, the pastor was Mark Driscoll. And it went from being a very small church, about 25 people meeting in his living room, to a multi-campus church with tens of thousands of people who attended the services every week. And, uh, and Driscoll, Driscoll was kind of, he, got, he kind of got to be well-known because uh, he would cuss during his sermons at appropriate times. Because there's, you know, I say at appropriate times, because it wasn't like he was just, it wasn't like profanity-filled preaching. It was just at certain times he would just let it rip, and you kind of knew where he stood. He also, uh, he was uh, very, uh, very, very man-centered, very, very masculine, very patriarchal, you might say, kind of reinstituting men as the head of the home, which is, which is not a bad thing. This is a biblical thing. He was Reformed, so he was Calvinistic, and then he was kind of... That's exactly what I thought. I thought, man, I should stop talking about Mark Driscoll. So, uh, kind of out of the blue, Mark fell. <laughs> so he was, he was very popular, but when he, when he got over to, he was in England preaching, and he was making his way to a cab, and on his way to the cab, the people were stopping him because they wanted to get his autograph. And man, he was saying, and he, the, he gets into the cab, and he looks at one of his assistant pastors, and he says, you know, hey, I'm kind of a big deal. And they thought he was joking. But he was saying, I really am a big deal. People are lining up to see me. I am really something. It can go to your head. Happens to preachers, happens to athletes, happens to bankers and lawyers and politicians. It happens. Skills and ability can puff you up. He was an excellent communicator, by the way. Number three, James chapter 2 tells us that wealth will puff up. Wealth will puff up. One of the real problems we have within Christianity sometimes is, is we still have social classism. Uh, class, as, as you're born to certain classes in America, is gone. But we have a different kind of classism in America. It's called cash class. If you've got a lot of dough, you're going to be a different social strata in life. And within a, within a local church sometimes, the more money you have, the more influential you can, you can be in a, in a church. Wealth can puff up. James chapter 2 says it like this. It says, let's read it together. James chapter 2, verse 2. Because I don't have it memorized that well. <clears throat> Excuse me. James is after Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2. What did I say? James 2. Thank you. James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 1. My Bible has this paragraph heading, The Sin of Partiality. My brothers, show no partiality. This is verse 1. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a, gold, wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, God has not chosen those who are, God has not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith, and theirs has not God. I'm going to stop reading this. I'm, I'm not reading it too well. That's why. Basically, the sin of partiality, preferring people one over the other because of their, their class, because of how much money they have. Now, this, this, can, this happens in churches. It happens. And it, and it can cause you to be puffed up. Wealth puffs up. So let's move on. Verse 4. Number 4. Beauty puffs up. Now, this is interesting because 
In 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 25, you, you read about David's son, Absalom. And Absalom re- leads a revolt against David. But the Bible says there in uh, 2 Samuel 14, 25, it says that Absalom is incredibly beautiful. That there is no, nothing to mar his beauty. He was, a, he was a beautiful man. And part of this puffed him up. Now, just think, think about the people you've known in your life so far. Do these things seem kind of spot on, these things that puff up? Knowledge puffs up, skills and ability puff up, wealth puffs up, beauty puffs up. And then fifthly, weird religious convictions can puff you up. Colossians chapter 2, verse number 18, where the Apostle Paul warns the Colossians against being lured into the false humility of worshiping angels. Now, I've been around all kinds of Christianity in my life. I I grew up in a very narrow, very conservative, very legalistic sect of Christianity. Where, how many of you you guys think it's a sin to lay lay, uh, any kind of book on top of your Bible? Anybody like that? How many of you ever thought about it? I've never, I never really thought about it except when I was a kid growing up in church, if they saw a hymn book laying on top of the Bible, they would say, hey, Put the Bible on top. You know, and that, that, that seems, that, on one hand, that seems like, okay, that's a decent idea. But it, was got, to, it got to be a big deal. And then, then there's all these other weird religious beliefs. I was, talk, I was preaching for a pastor in Hot Springs, Arkansas one time. And he told me, he said, Terry, I never bring any foreign signals into my house. And I thought, what is a foreign signal? I don't bring any of those devil waves into my house. Oh, what's he talking about? Well, he didn't have a TV. We don't watch that TV in my house. We don't watch any. We don't watch any television. <laughs> and you know, and he had nine kids. You know, and they're all like little soldiers. You know, just <laughs> homeschooler, whole nine yards, man. And uh, but all of a sudden, one one time, one, he pastored that church for about a year and a half. And the next thing, you no, know, he's gone. Nobody knows where he is. He's way down in South Louisiana. But the reason why he had to leave his church so abruptly was because he was he had he had a child before he got married. Before he became a Christian, he had a child with a lady, and finally she had she wanted to get child support from him. Now, he was a big, he was a big home, he, he taught on the home, you know, Mr. Home, all this kind of stuff, and he, no foreign signals, blah, blah, blah. But he, was, he didn't want to pay child support for this kid that he had had. And so he's running all the time. He had these very weird religious beliefs. Very unusual guy. But, but he's running from child support, right? Now, <laughs> true religion, a true Christian would have done what? Paid his child support. <laughs> I mean, if it's your kid, pay the child support. If it's not your kid, it's a different matter. But he is running from it all the time. Weird religious, weird religious beliefs can puff you up. And I know because I've been in that same situation. These are five things that can make us arrogant as Christians. So we need to be sure we work to maintain an attitude of humility. And we could probably think of a lot, a lot more things that can make us arrogant as individuals or as a church 
We have to guard against it. We must not think more highly of, our, of ourselves than we ought to think. That does, this doesn't mean we shouldn't have any, think of our, we, that we shouldn't think well of ourselves or value ourselves. But we shouldn't think too highly of ourselves. We shouldn't start to think that, think that we're that, really that amazing. When I left my first church in Burnett, Texas, I really thought that when I leave, those people are going to be so devastated they'll never make it without me. I thought they're just going to die of a broken heart, right? And so I, was, uh, I, I had left and moved up to Arkansas to pastor, and I called back down. I was talking to one of the deacons of the church, a guy named uh, Scotty Bristow. You know, and I said, well, Scotty, I said, well, how, how are you guys doing? Well, we're doing great. <laughs> We've had some visitors who showed up, you know. we got a new pastor coming. We're all excited, you know. Things are just going great, I thought. I don't want you to be doing great without me. <laughs> but that's just how we are. We can become, we think of too highly of ourselves. Now, in verses 4 to 5, the apostle tells us about the awareness that we need. We need to be aware of the fact that we are, that we are one body. We are one body. And this is where I think it's important to think about the local church in the context of the local church. In this local fellowship, we are one body. We are interconnected with one another. We're connected. There's connective tissue binding us together through the Holy Spirit. We need to know that we need each other, and that will cause us to value one another. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12, 19. This is from the, this is from the NIV reader's version. This is 1 Corinthians 12, 19. If all the parts were the same, how could there be a body? The different parts of the body would make the body what it is. Paul's reasoning there in 1, in 1 Corinthians is... If everybody was an eye, where would be the hearing? If, if everybody was an ear, then where would be the seeing? We need all these different parts in the church. This is from Eugene Peterson's The Message. Listen to how, how he renders that section. It's a little bit longer. But he says, I want you to think about how this, this body, this unity of the body, how this keeps your significance from getting blown up into self-importance. For no matter how significant you are, it is only because of what you are part of. An enormous eye or a gigantic hand would not be a body, it would be a monster. The diversity of the different parts are what make us what we are. We need everybody. We need, we need the hair of the body, we need the eyes of the body, the ears, the feet, the fingernails. We need everybody. The church is a body, and every part is important. Every part has a place, has a role to play. Now, in a local church, there's a lot of diversity. And this diversity, the word diversity is, is hijacked so often, but diversity really does enrich us. We have men and women, kids, socialites and outcasts, all ethnicities, and all these things within our church, these things are good for a church. They're good for us. So what the apostle says is we need to value each other within the local fellowship. Now here are a bunch of A's, okay? A bunch of A's. Here's who we need in the church. (laughs) We need the anointed ones in the church. The anointed ones. We need the annoying ones (laughs) in the church. We need the awkward ones in the church and the anxious ones in the church. We need everybody in the church. We need people who are are mature oaks of the Christian faith 
And we need little saplings who are just pushing through the earth to encourage and help, help one another. We work together in the church. We're dependent on one another. We are the body of Christ and members in particular, Paul says. Now, the presence of these people in our lives, these people being the anointed ones, the annoying ones, the awkward ones, and the anxious ones, the presence of this diversity of people in our lives helps us to be more like Christ because while Christ was on the earth, he was surrounded by these 12 apostles. And if you read the Gospels, you'll see that these 12 apostles, these guys were, some of them were really great to be around, and some of them were really not that great to be around, in my opinion. But it doesn't tell us all about them, every single thing about them, but they were very different individuals. Now, they were diverse in age, in background, in politics, in education, vocation, and in their individual temperaments. And then that was with the original 12. But then you had about 100 other people who are around Jesus a lot who were all recovering Pharisees and former followers of John the Baptist. Now, I'm going to say something here that's kind of funny, and you guys might appreciate it. But who came first, John the Baptist or Jesus? Okay, so all the followers of John the Baptist, he baptized them, which made them what? Okay, if you're baptized by John the Baptist, that means you're probably a Baptist, right? So uh, this, is fun. this is fun to say. John the Baptist and the Baptist came first, right? Let's say that together. <laughs> no, I'm just teasing. John the Baptist and the Baptist came first. And then, then who showed up? Jesus. And the followers of Jesus are called what? Christians. And so all Baptists need to become what? Christians. <laughs> The Baptists were Baptists until Jesus came along, then they became Christians. I think that's so funny. Because <laughs> I, I can prove it biblically that being a Baptist doesn't make you a Christian. <laughs> but it helps if you are a Christian to be a Baptist. <laughs> this local body is, so, is important. We're, we're made together. We need one another. We're dependent on one another. Now, sometimes we say, well, I don't really feel like I'm super connected to my church. And, 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 you know, that's true probably sometimes. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you do feel very connected to other people in the church. Now, most of the time, I don't think about my baby toe on my right foot hardly ever. You think about it? I never think about it. But if I'm walking through the house in the dark and I hit that dude on a door jam... I'm reminded. He's there. Right? And so in a church, it's, not, it's normal. You're, you're not always going to feel super connected. But there are times when you're going to feel very connected to your church. And so, but it tells us we're, we're all connected. We're all important. And we need to intentionally value one another and think about each other in these ways. Now, the third thing the apostle gives us here are the aptitudes. The aptitudes we have or the gifts. One commentator says this about the spiritual gifts. A spiritual gift is a God-given capacity through the Holy Spirit that supernaturally ministers to the body. Your spiritual gift is a unique capacity to minister to the body of Christ through the channel of the Spirit of God who supernaturally touches the lives of other people. So when we are born again, God gives to us these gifts. Look at your Bible there. Look at the reading here. Verse 4, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. 
So there's diversity in the function. So we, through, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually, members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Now, God graciously gives to us different gifts to use for Him. That's the word grace. It's a favor. The word grace can be, uh, can be it's charis is the word, and it could be translated gift, right? A gift that's given. God gives you these gifts to serve the body. And he gives everybody different gifts, different enablements for the benefit of the church. So when you're born again, so think about it like this. When you were born the first time, when you were born physically, when, the, uh, when, the, when, the, uh, when you were formed in your mother's womb, already there was a, uh, your DNA was programmed and all the inclinations that you were going to have were already there. Harold Seitler in his sermon, The Church, A Body, he says that the moment of conception, everything I was going to be in my life, as far as my height, size, everything, was all already, already programmed. I just grew into those things. And when you're born again, it's the same way. The Holy Spirit comes inside of you and takes over you, and you begin to mature and develop into a Christian person with certain inclinations and gifts. Now, the best way I know to illustrate that the difference of gifts is, um, like with the gift of, like, I don't know. If I say this, then it commits me to one position. I don't want to say that. But this is just, this is, this is just a, a what if, okay? This is not, don't hold me to what I'm about to say, okay? You promise? <laughs> I'm going to use some, this is just illustrative, Okay? But I don't know if I should do it or not. <laughs> Romans 7. I'll just stick with my outline. So the, these giftings that we have, they become more obvious as you grow as a Christian. So if you become a Christian last Sunday, then it may not be obvious to you what your spiritual gift is yet. You're kind of going to grow into it. Just like a little kid. You think you know what a kid's going to really be good at. You're going to make, my dad, when I was a kid, he said, you're going to make a great lawyer because you are very argumentative. <laughs> well, I grew out of that. <laughs> not the argumentative part, <laughs> but, but the being a lawyer part. So it's not always obvious, but it becomes obvious as you, as you go along as you mature spiritually. Now, in this section of Scripture, the Apostle Paul gives us, he mentions the spiritual gifts. Now, there are two kinds of spiritual gifts. There are serving gifts and sign gifts. Serving gifts and sign gifts. The serving gifts are the unique enablements of the Holy Spirit whereby God works through individuals in ways that primarily benefit the local church that they are connected to. So these are the serving gifts, right? Now, for the first 30 years of the Christian church, both types of gifts, of gifts were active. But one type began to disappear. And that was the sign gifts. You have serving gifts and sign gifts. Now, I can say without a doubt, without reservation, that the sign gifts, they disappeared. And I know it to be true because I know they disappeared for at least 1,500 years. For at least 1,500 years. So I know they ceased for at least 1,500 years. Now, before the 20th century... The majority of Christianity said that the sign gifts were no more. But in the 20th century, 
there was an eruption, now what's called the charismatic gifts, or what we call sometimes the charismatic renewal. Now, there are four super pseudo errors within Christianity right now. Four super pseudo errors, okay, that appeared in the United States of America. Now, the United States of America is the greatest nation on the face of the earth, in my humble opinion. It's a great country. It's a great country. We have, we have the greatest principles imaginable. Now, that said, the United States of America, we have produced four super errors in Christianity. These four things have come from America. They're unique to America, all right? You ready for them? And they all began in the 19th century. Martin Lloyd-Jones said he wished he could just erase the, eight, the 1800s. Just Because all the, the most pervasive theological errors emerged in the 19th century, the 1800s. So here are, these, here are these errors, okay? In the 19th century, in America, Mormonism appeared, Jehovah's Witnesses appeared, and Campbellism appeared. All three of those groups are restoration groups. They all three believed that on the face of the earth, the true Christian church had become so corrupted that it didn't exist anymore. And so it needed to be restored through the teachings of certain of these of three individuals, basically. So it's called the restoration movement. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Campbellism. Now, Sidney Rigdon, this, this, is, this is nerdy stuff, okay? This is just dumb. But Sidney Rigdon is probably the true founder of Mormonism, Sidney Rigdon. Now, he became friends with Joseph Smith, and then you have that kind of Mormonism. But Sidney Rigdon was also a close friend with a man named Alexander Campbell, who gave us Campbellism, known to, known, more properly known as the Church of Christ today. So these are super errors. They're restoration movements. And they, they come back and they say that the Bible is corrupt. It needs to be retranslated. You can't trust the Bible. You can't trust Orthodox Christianity. And so they, they recreate Christianity. And when they recreate Christianity, they, re, they recreate pseudo-Christianity, a false Christianity. That's Mormonism, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Campbellites. All the same group, okay? All errant beliefs. Now, I said, now how many, how many errors did I say we, that we had? We have four. So there's got to be one more. Got to be one more. Now, this, this, this error is not as fatal as the others, but it's Pentecostalism or the charismatic movement. And you say, now, Terry, I don't know if I like the way you're saying that. Hey, let me finish my sermon. <laughs> and you might change your mind a little bit. Now, everything, everything about Mormonism, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Campbellism and Campbellites, everything about those three groups is bad. There is not one salvific virtue within those three. There's nothing good. It's a different God. It's a different Holy Spirit. It's a different Jesus. It's a different way of salvation. There is nothing good. And I'll stand, and I'll, uh, that's a hill that I'll die on. Nothing good in those three. Now, Pentecostalism is not quite the same thing. Because Pentecostalism, or within the charismatic movement, there are a lot of true believers. They haven't abandoned the true doctrine of God. They haven't abandoned the Trinity. They haven't abandoned biblical salvation. They have some errors, but they haven't abandoned the whole enchilada 
like the big three. <coughs> it would be easy, however, to just, to just anathematize all charismatics without exception. It would be very easy to do, because that, that, that's the easiest thing to do, right? It's like saying, all Democrats are bad. That's easy to do, right? All Republicans are bad. That's easy to do, right? Just like all Yankees are bad. <laughs> that would be easy to do. But within Pentecostalism, within the charismatic movement, there are some people who are just great people who believe the truth. They have, they have some errors, but who is without error? Here's what John MacArthur says, okay? This is funny. John MacArthur says, I don't think that I have no theological errors. But I, if I do, I just don't know where they are. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not right about everything, but I don't know where I'm wrong. <laughs> you might say it that way. So, within the charismatic movement, there are true children of God. They are misguided by an error in teaching. And this error often leads to other errors. And this is the thing to keep in mind. One error very often leads to another error. Now, I've experienced this firsthand because I am a Calvinist, which means I believe in the five points of Calvinism. That's how I think soteriology works, right? That's how I think it works. You may not. That's fine. I think it works. I think the five points sum up the way salvation works. Now, Some Calvinists believe that you should not preach the gospel randomly or give public appeals to salvation. There's a big debate within Reformed theology about the free offer of the gospel. Now, at the beginning of this sermon, I told people who are not Christians to do what? What did I say? Believe on Christ, call upon him. Whoever calls, he'll receive. That's called the free offer of the gospel. If you say, whoever will believe, believe. If you want to be saved, call upon Christ and he'll save you. That's the free offer of the gospel. I have close friends who would never say that. They would never say that because they say, well, we don't know who is elect and who isn't elect. Now, our friend and brother in the faith, Charles Spurgeon, he said, it is not our business to go around figuring out who is elect or not. Our business is to preach the gospel to every creature. My dad's friend, William Canoy, he said, election is God's business and not, and not our business, so stay out of God's business. So we preach the gospel to everybody. And we call upon everyone to come and believe. Come and dine, the master called, come and dine. Come and feast at Jesus' table all the time. So it'd be easy to say all Calvinists don't believe in the free offer. Well, they don't all believe that. We, 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 it's easy to broad brush these things. Now, one error often leads to other errors. Some of the errors of the charismatic movement are so awful, repugnant, and addictive that it seems like the best solution just to say that they're all wacko. How many of you guys have ever seen Benny Hinn on TV? Ever seen Benny Hinn on TV? And, or uh, Oral Roberts. He's dead now, though. Oral Roberts. Kenneth Hagin, he's also, oh, he might be dead. You can see Mike Murdoch. 
who was who was the PTL people? Who are their names? The Baker, uh, Jim and Jim and Tammy. You, you can get you know, There's all kinds of, of crazy people out there who are on that who are on the, the charismatic side of the fence. And you can say, well, there's all like that, but they're not all like that. Well, some of them are. So it's not easy. You kind of you kind of got to work through and consider people case by case what they actually believe. <clears throat> now, I'm not sure what the real time is. What time is it, Jose? 11:40. So I got. I'm gonna take. I'm gonna take a few more minutes here. So we're talking about errors, and I'm gonna use a word. The word heresy. Now, there are two kinds of heresy, okay? Two kinds of heresy. The way the Bible uses the word heresy, heresy can be, can be a different opinion, a different, a different opinion, a different way of looking at something. Like, um, so there are two kinds of heresy in the Bible. There is non-lethal heresy and there is damnable heresy. Non-lethal heresy and damnable heresy. Non-lethal heresy would be something like this. The church I pastor in Oklahoma, they believed in closed communion only. So only the members of that church were allowed to take communion. And before we had communion, I would say to everybody, this communion is only for those people who are members of the church, and so we ask that you not take the Lord's Supper with us. And a lot of times when I would be giving the prayer uh, of, uh, they didn't call it this, but the prayer of whatever, um, induction. Usually non-members, we would just leave. And usually we did it on a Sunday afternoon. There wasn't anybody hardly there who wasn't a member anyway. That's the way we did it. And now, and then come, come here to faith. And in faith, we say, come one and come all. And take the Lord's table. Right? Now, which one of those views is right? <laughs> it just depends <laughs> on the, what the church has decided. There's, there's no right or wrong to it. Now, those who do it say this is, it's right for these reasons. Those who don't say it's right for these reasons. But it's not a fatal error. Not a fatal error. My, so, for instance, my father. My father does not believe in the universal body of Christ. He doesn't believe in the universal church. He believes in the local church only. And that probably, in some sense, all the local churches in aggregate make up the kingdom of God, which is an interesting position. But, but that's not a fatal error. There's errors that are not fatal. They're not terminal, right? Now, at the beginning of the sermon, I said that if one appropriated salvation through the rubbing of something on your arm, then that's what I would preach. What did I say to rub on your arm? Peter and jelly sandwich. If I was preaching that, that you're saved by rubbing peanut butter and jelly sandwiches on your arm, that'd be a fatal error, right? How do we know it's a fatal error? The Bible says something else. So there are fatal errors and non-fatal errors. Now, in 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, in the modern versions, it says there must be factions among you. But in the authorized version, it uses the word heresies. There must be difference of, differences of opinion within the church, Paul says, so you can do these examinations. So there are fatal errors and there are non-lethal errors. Lethal errors are mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, and he uses the word damnable, damnable heresies. There are damnable heresies. Now, within Christianity, there are many in-house debates about different theological perspectives that are disagreements between brothers and sisters, like communion. 
but a, a disagreement, therefore a disagreement over baptism and communion does not automatically mean it's a damnable heresy. But there are Christian churches, pseudo-Christian churches, who say you must take communion and you must be baptized in order to be saved. Now, that's, that, that'd be a serious error. That's a lethal error. That's a lethal heresy, a damnable heresy. So, lethal errors, if an error is lethal, you can't give it any mercy, right? You can't give it any, any, any mercy. The Apostle Paul said, Though I or an angel from heaven come and preach any other gospel to you, let, let them be accursed, let them be damned. There are some errors that you can't, you can't cut them any slack because they'll take you to hell. But there are other, there are other things that are, dis, dis, there are differences of opinion, right? So, our charismatic friends, what class are they in? <laughs> there are some very hard-lined people here. <laughs> our charismatic friends... They're not in the lethal error category. They're not. They're, they're error in my opinion, but then again, it's my opinion, right? So, they're not, in, they're not guilty of damnable heresy. I think they're in error. It would be easy for us to get all wound up about the errors of charismatics and tell stories that illustrate their excesses. But our more pressing issue is to figure out how the serving gifts work and get busy serving God. And then we can talk about the sign gifts after that. And so, this sermon is over. All in favor, say aye. aye. All right. Now, in the Bible, there are two lists. Now, on your screen right here is this QR code. In the Bible, there are lists of serving gifts. Now, sometimes it's hard to find out what your gift is, your spiritual gift is for serving. If you take your QR, if you take your phone and take a picture of this QR code, if you have a QR reader, this is going to take you to a spiritual gift test. And it costs $59.95. <laughs> All the money goes to my airplane fund. <laughs> but this will take you to a link on our website where you can take a spiritual gift test and try to figure out what your, what your gift is. All right? Kind of give you some. And then next week, I'm going to talk about the serving gifts. Now, just in case you don't have a phone that does that or that doesn't work for you this afternoon, Jim's going to send out an email with a link in it. You can go and take this little test and kind of see what it is. And then next week, we can all get together and compare our scores. <laughs> but we'll, we'll look at those together and figure out what our serving gifts are because I think there is some credence to serving in your strengths. Ed Young at Fellowship Church in uh, Dallas, Texas, he says this, Lean into your strengths. Lean away from your weaknesses. So if you have a strength in there, you want to get involved in something that you have a spiritual inclination to do, then we can serve the Lord maybe better and more efficiently.